You're listening to the Life Tree Church Sermon of the Week. We pray that as you hear this word, you would be encouraged and inspired as you pursue Jesus in your everyday life. Good morning, Life Tree. Oh, we've got a heavy, heavy topic to cover this morning, and it's so fitting coming into the season of Christmas. Because so much of the advent of Christ into our lives and onto the earth was people living in darkness get to see a great light. Yeah, so we're going to talk this morning about radiating hope in times of grief. And we sang a lot this morning about joy and all that Christ brings us. Just want to remind you that we're in the midst of a series of teachings that we've called Gospel Culture. And I have so enjoyed the teachings. It's been largely focused on unity in the midst of so many divisive topics and themes in our society and our culture. Unity is a beautiful way for the church of Christ to radiate the goodness of God and what he does to bridge our differences in the midst of times like this. Last week, I'd say the best takeaway I had from what Caleb taught on was how the love of Christ is a condescending love, and the premise many of us take with the term condescending love is he's like, you know, arms folded, looking down critically. And I, I wrote down what, what uh, Caleb said. He said, God's on high. He doesn't look down on us. He comes down to us. And that is the very essence of what Emmanuel means. He's right there with us. So I'm going to talk this morning about the notion of holding on at the same time to hope and grief. Hope and grief. Now, while we were singing this morning, I felt very strongly to tell you this now. I believe that there's people here today who have chosen because of things that have been hurtful in their past... They've made statements. You've made statements inside of yourself, and you've said, I won't love again. Or I won't love fiercely like that again. I'm going to hold back on my love because it hurts too much. And I trust this morning that what we're going to talk about and learn from Scripture as we look at Jesus with us in our suffering is that that's poor advice to your soul. There is a way to love fiercely the way God loves us and that we can at the same time hold on to hope and grief. And I want to walk you through that a bit this morning. If you're a note taker, this is a time to take notes. And if you're listening online, you're fortunate because you can pause and go grab a pen and some paper. But we're going to look this morning at four reasons we radiate hope when our lives have pain and suffering. Four reasons. Now, I'm going to say right up front, overtly, I'm speaking this morning with a big assumption. I'm assuming as you're listening to me speak that you love Jesus. And that's why you'd be radiating hope. I'm assuming that you follow him with all your heart and you want to become more like him and for your life to bring glory to him. If you don't love Jesus, this is going to seem confusing. If you're struggling to know whether he deserves your best or he deserves to be controlling your life, this is going to be impossible. Because we're talking about something where God walks with you in the midst of your pain because you're connected to him in relationship that's vital and intimate. 
So that's going to be assumed when I'm speaking today. And I realize fully that some who are listening now or in the future may not consider themselves sold-out Jesus followers. You may not even believe in Jesus at this point in your journey, but what this can do is whet your appetite to go, oh, a walk with Jesus actually enables me to go through the hardest, most treacherous times in life and hold on to hope simultaneously. That is the joy of a journey with Jesus. So this is meant to show this morning the powerful, cohesive effect of faith and hope in the midst of the most adverse seasons of life. If you haven't yet thought about it this morning since I started, start touching in inside yourself what hurts the most right now in your life. Most of us have something like a lightning rod that attracts, and yeah, there's a memory, a thought, a name, a relationship. It's like that's where the hurt is in me. And I'm guessing that if we're being authentic and answering honestly, all of us have something that hurts. There's no need at all to create a hierarchy of this person's got a bigger hurt than mine, so mine's diminished in the sense that it doesn't count. It does. If it hurts, it hurts. We all grieve differently. We all feel differently. The the purpose here is to be honest about how we truly feel and meet our Lord in the midst of times of grief and difficulty. There's this beautiful scripture, and I'm going to touch on a bunch of different scripture verses this morning in 1 Thessalonians 4, where Paul is writing to the Thessalonians, and some in their community had died. People who loved Jesus with all their hearts had passed away, and the community was getting rocked. And those words will come up there from 1 Thessalonians 4.13. He says, Brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died, so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. We want to grieve as people with hope. We're not loving less. We're not dismissing grief. We're holding on to both at the same time. So let's just touch in again. What's our grief? What's our loss? Where's that hurt land? Because that's exactly what the Spirit of God wants to speak to you this morning in, so that it makes sense in your context, in your situation, that you have hope to hold on to where it hurts the most intensively. This is a season where there's so much that can be reminding us of what we don't have. This is the week that we remember in our family the loss of my father-in-law this week. My wife's in my first year of marriage. We were anticipating decades together with this amazing man in our lives. And he died instantly at work in his early 40s. This is our first Christmas ever we don't get to have with our son. He's elsewhere for reasons that aren't great. And we're all coming into a season that could be very celebratory, but there could be a heaviness or a sobering part of it that's hard to hold on to in the midst of. And this is something very wonderful we get to do as Jesus followers. We can fully celebrate while we're totally feeling what hurts so deeply. So Lord, the prayer is one sentence long. Fill me with hope in the midst of grief. Now, as I've done a lot of self-reflecting and reading and praying over the last few weeks getting ready to be with you today, I've come up with something that keeps ending up at the same intersection in my life. All my grief is the product of 
shattered expectations. Just touch in with that in your own life if that seems to be true. All my grief in life is the product of shattered expectations. And I'll try to give you a, a few examples to put texture to that. Regardless of whether it's illness, damaged relationships, addiction, or death, strangely, I've discovered that I expect people to always be healthy. I expect them to always recover if they're sick. I expect them to always be faithful in relationships. I always expect them to stay and not run from struggles. I always expect them to forgive. And I always expect them to never die. And if you're like me, the grief you feel in life and what hurts the most is that hasn't happened predictably. It's been freakishly unpredictable. And that's where the hurt is. I'm continually struck, and I've talked with multiple people about this who are elderly this week, how people who've been married so many decades presume that somehow things would wrap up and no one would die. Because when someone does, they're shocked. Shocked or not, it hurts. So have you ever found yourself struggling to figure out how to get God to do what you've planned for him to do? It's hard to know if God's going to come through for you when we're always setting the agenda. So I have two little phrases up on the next slide. The first one, a question, will God always come through? What does the people of God say? Yes. What do the people of God say? Yes, God will always come through for us. But then when we ask a tougher question, how will God come through for us? All that the people of God can answer is, as he chooses. Could you say that with me? As you choose. Yeah. He gets to be God. So he gets to choose how he'll come through. So today we're really considering another way of saying it is how to be expectant without expectations. When the Lord hit me with that a few weeks ago, I was like, okay, what do you mean? And I'm still kind of trying to unpack it. But expect it means I'm getting up in the morning and I talk about puppy dog posture. You know what puppy dogs look like and how they posture? There's not a lot of grace or formality to it. They're just moving and they're looking for opportunity and they're excited. So there's this expectancy, this hopefulness. I'm going for it, but I don't know what's going to happen. Are we going on a walk? Am I getting a treat? Do you want to rub my belly? I'm not sure, but it's going to be good. And when we walk that way with God, we can be expectant without expectations. As in, I'm so excited that God's going to do this, and then he doesn't. You're like, what? And you know what the immediate result for many of us is? Oh, God's not good. We're going to talk about that in a bit. But we do some very illogical reasoning in our Christian walk. Being expectant without expectations is a powerful posture to hold. I put up a word cloud there because these are the words and thoughts that kept coming out to me when I thought about grief and hope. There's always this understanding, for instance, that community is going to be needed, that people who are grieving often feel very isolated and alone, that a time of grief most demands our faith, but it's also a time when there's struggles with doubt. So just camp on those words and those thoughts, and maybe there's a few in your own mind that you'd write down if you were building a word cloud of what would go in there. 
So we're going to jump into four reasons we radiate hope when our lives have pain and suffering. The four are, number one, our suffering leads us to hope. How about you say these with me? Let's say that together. Our suffering leads us to hope. It's really weird when you have masks on because I have no clue. I just kind of white noise, right? Okay, number two, we know God is good regardless of circumstances. Good. Third, God comforts us when we mourn. And fourthly, we know how to lament. Okay, let's jump into those four. First of all, number one, our suffering leads us to hope. If you ever get in a conversation with yourself or someone else in the midst of grief, you could ask them this question or yourself, what's the best part of grief? And most people go, huh? How can there be a good part to grief? Well, Paul was very clear. There was a great part to grief because he said in Romans 5, suffering produces perseverance. In, sorry, suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character and character produces hope. This is back to my original assumption. You're a follower of Jesus. You trust him with all of your life. And in the midst of suffering, the ultimate outcome is hope. That's actually the outcome that God promises people in the midst of suffering and pain. I'm going to read that a little flushed out from the Passion Translation. Even in times of trouble, we have a joyful confidence, knowing that our tribulation will develop in us patient endurance. And patient endurance will refine our character. And proven character leads us back to hope. And this hope is not a disappointing fantasy because we can now experience the endless love of God cascading into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Over the last few months, I've been reading a pair of books kind of simultaneous with the scriptures. Both those images will come up. One's walking with God through pain and suffering. I actually ended up at the library one day in my neighborhood, and there was only certain books that were available, and you had to point at them, and then the librarian would grab them. And I said, could you take me into the religious section? And she did. And I, I was trying to read the spines, but I was required to be like four meters back. And I saw Timothy Keller's name on a spine, and I'm like, he's a good author. And she grabbed me this out of the public library, and I have lived in that book for weeks, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. It's an amazing book. And another one that a friend had recommended, The Genius of Jesus. A quote from Keller in Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. Suffering's at the very heart of the Christian faith. It is not only the way Christ became like and redeemed us, it's one of the main ways we become like him and experience his redemption. And that means our suffering, despite its painfulness, is filled with purpose and usefulness. Grief, grief gives opportunity to share hope. If you're a person who's like, I want to share my faith, but I don't know how, listen to and spend time with people who are hurting. Remember, one of the key attributes of people in grief is they feel alone and they often are alone. I hear people and I talk to people even this week who have gone through very tough times in the last few years and they say, no one's shown up. My question to them as part of a community has, have you asked people to show up? They haven't know how to articulate their need. And others standing on the periphery have gone, I don't know how to enter in. And so this awkward stalemate occurs in a community that could be so tightly connected where there's missed opportunity for both those who are grieving and those who could be comforting. This is an amazing way 
to share the goodness of God in the midst of sadness and grief. It's this epic window to declare God's good in the midst of it. Because we're stewards of the gospel, and the gospel, remember, it's always good news. There's not a setting or a circumstance where we go, the gospel's not good news. It's that we often don't understand how the gospel fits where we are right now. And when we do ask God to reveal it to us in our setting, he will show you good news looks like this in this hard time. There's at least four reasons why we suffer. There's probably more that you could think of. We're human. Stuff happens. <laughs> stuff just happens. You, you live in Princeton, and there's a slide, and stuff happens. You're in a place where something goes down, and, and that's the place you are. And so just by virtue of being, being human, there's pain and suffering that comes your way. There's a whole other level of pain and suffering that comes because you love, because you attach to people, you connect to people, you're close to others. And it means a lot when something harmful happens to them. It hurts you too. We do dumb things. Peter even raises this point. You know, shame on you if you suffer for being a stupid person. But there's a fourth thing that's really gorgeous about suffering. We suffer because we love Jesus. It's not an experience that's super common in our culture, in our society. And we often have very strange interpretations and manifestations of what we think it looks like. But when we truly love Jesus above all, it certainly leads believers in many parts of the world into situations that result in pain and suffering and loss. I remember being at a point, 20-ish, a relationship of three years with a girlfriend who I was madly in love with ended. I came to a very clear conclusion. I'll never love again. Looking back, it's hilarious. It's like, are you kidding me? That was, your, that was your takeaway? But in the moment, that's all I had. I didn't have a way to process or create a path forward. There was loss. It hurt. Run away from what hurts. Don't get into love again. There's been really, you know, sophisticated efforts, different worldviews and religious perspectives built to try to deal with this hurt we have as people who love and the hurt that comes from losing that. Greeks and Stoics determined that inordinate attachment to earthly things leads to unnecessary pain and grief. And their resulting action was to decrease their love for and detach from what was earthly. You just kind of coast above it all. Your, your life's kind of a hovercraft over the earth. You kind of keep things at a distance because you're just waiting for the big good stuff that happens later in life. What an unfortunate way to navigate what could have been rich relationships. So we're trying to find ways often to cope with or to soften the blow, and the usual result is we pull back. Now think of Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. He knew exactly what was coming, and flinching, backing away, or deflecting was never the option. It's like, I'm going through these relationships. Because there's something on the other side that's so worthwhile, we don't want to miss out now, and we don't want to miss out what's future. And the beautiful thing in the Christian walk is we get both. 
We get the hope and the grief at the same time. Grief's fully human. Hope is truly of God. We get it all. It's amazing. Eric Fromm writes, to spare oneself from grief at all cost can be achieved, but only at the price of total detachment, which excludes the ability to experience happiness. To never love again, you miss out on all the opportunity of love. I have a friend I met in my late 20s. He was a young married man, as was I. And one day over coffee, he told me his story, how as a young boy, an only child, his father died. Completely devastating. Just shattered his world. And his conclusion from then onward, I will never have a child. So his response was as refined as my, I'll never have a girlfriend. Right? It's like, this point of relationship was too painful to revisit. I never want to put a child through what I went through as a child, therefore. Very true pain, very horrid conclusion. Because he misses out on so much. Look for it. Look for it in your own life. Look for it in others' lives whom you love. That the Spirit of God would speak into and say, look where you're pulling back. Look where you're withholding. Look where you're trying to detach because it might hurt. Don't do that. We need insight to see that we're doing that. And then we need the wisdom and the hope that only God can give us to move in, not pull back. Christians don't determine to love life and others less to avoid future loss. Rather, as Augustine concluded, the answer is to love God more than anything else. Can you say with me, love God more than anything else? I'll keep on reading. When our greatest love is God, we have a love we cannot lose even in death. Our hope and love in the Lord seasons our sorrow. Next reason that we can have hope and grief at the same time, we know God's good regardless of circumstances. Some of us might go, I don't know that. Well, let me introduce you to how he is. We know God's good regardless of circumstances. What we believe about the character of God can be tested when we encounter pain and suffering. I'd say it's more tested than ever when we encounter pain and suffering. You probably know someone. You may be someone. Your faith in God was there. It seemed pretty solid. You believed in Jesus as God's son. A storm hit your life, and you're like, ah. Oh. The conclusion is God's character is now in question. When God's character becomes questioned, I would suggest your life just lost its foundation. The general premise of this reaction to tough times is that God is supposed to protect us from pain. And if he doesn't, then he doesn't warrant my belief. He doesn't warrant my trust any longer. And maybe you're in that spot right now where you're like, God was supposed to keep me from pain. He's my God of avoidance. But he's never promised to be that. He promises to be your God of comfort in the midst of your pain. And I realize this, and I see it in so many lives. Trauma and grief can shatter our belief systems. We have a way of believing often very naively, that life's about happiness 
and idealizing our circumstances. And we're cruising along and our worldview is working and then some landmine goes off on our path and we lose a limb. And we drag ourselves away from the wreckage and go, God can't be good. Life is good and so is God. And so we need to find out what it is that's caused us to pull back from the very one who would hold it all together. When grief and sadness are allowed to do their worst, something toxic can set in. We can be trapped in a broken narrative. I want you to hear that again. We can be trapped in a broken narrative, meaning you just have this same loop playing in your mind of how God was supposed to be a certain way, and he wasn't that way, and life's not supposed to be like this, therefore God's at fault. We treadmill on that. Why? Why me? Why not God? Hopeless, mired with a sense of being out of control, alone, and unclear on a way forward. So the challenge here is that we're called to build our belief in him, our theology, what we actually know to be true about God, based on how he's revealed himself to us, not our circumstances. He's revealed himself to us in magnitude ways, through other people, through testimony, through fulfilled prophecy, through creation around us, through the word of God that we have as the Bible, to know who he truly is and what he's like. We find our best revelation of him watching Jesus. And when we look at Jesus, we see how God works. And we know God, who loved Jesus most, didn't spare him. But he was with him in the midst of the darkest hours. Romans 8.32 tells us God didn't spare his own son a gruesome death. And this isn't used as a way to prove, see, he's into hurting people. It's used as a way to message, do you see how God will do anything he can, even give up his own son's comfort for the sake of you and I, to know he loves us? That's how much he loves us. He won't even spare the one whom he loves, to go, loves the most. He'll go to any lengths for those he loves. He doesn't withhold his very best. And the conclusion from that in Romans 8, made by the Apostle Paul, is that we can then conclude he'll give us all things. And we so say, wow, in Romans 8, he'll graciously give us all things. And you go, oh, this sounds really rich. This sounds really exciting. And the truth is, it is. It's his relationship with us. Because do you know what Paul jumps into next? It bends our mind if we're using a non-Christian worldview. It says that he'll be with us in famine, torture. Okay, what? He'll be with us in nakedness, in persecution, in danger, and sword. And so what Paul is saying is, our God's not big on our comfort. He's actually big on being with us in the midst of our discomfort. He's not big on our comfort. He's big on being with us in the midst of our discomfort. And Paul wraps up that chapter saying, if he's for us, who can be against us? If he loves us, who can separate us from that love? And the answer is nobody, nothing. We're totally rock solid with God at work in our lives. There's a question raised in an interview to Bill Johnson, a well-known pastor. What do you do when what you're waiting for 
that you've been promised still hasn't happened. Something you're waiting for, you're expecting, you feel it's even been promised and it still hasn't happened. And his answer is beautiful. I'm going to read a few lines here. He says, well, how to live in the midst of disappointment is how we've done well. We had a season in our church family when 10 people close to us died in the church within 18 months. He said, how do we contend for a breakthrough, not get it, and still not blame God? He says, this is how I do it. I don't hold God hostage to one particular answer. He says, I've learned to celebrate all that God is doing right now rather than fixating on one particular situation. When you're in grief, that's usually what you do. You fixate on one particular situation that's not the way you want it to be. But what he says rather is he fuels an atmosphere of anticipation. In that environment of anticipation, it's much tougher to get discouraged. He concludes, I refuse to entertain anything that brings God's character into question. Everything we do, everything we believe, hinges on God being good. I will not allow myself to accuse God. I will only allow myself to think of him as good. If we bring his character into question, if we doubt his goodness, we've lost everything. I'd say that in all of today's teaching, I'd give you two takeaways that I'd love for you to have as like what you're going to work on this week. This is number one. Can you resolve in your heart that God's always good? If you do, you have a way to move forward. Because if you resolve, this is always good. In the same way that my wife and I determined 30 years ago, we're always together. It just takes a whole lot of other possibilities that people would see off the table, and it keeps us focused on what we're here to do. God's good. The second takeaway is going to come our way a little later. Putting this into day-to-day in two succinct sentences came to me in a text this week. When you know you can put your hand in the hand of a trustworthy father, you can walk through any valley. With a grid for a loving Heavenly Father, you have a pathway to go the distance. That's from our own Drew Mackey. Yeah, Drew. Theologian with a beard. When our world gets rocked, we get to put the pieces of life together differently if we choose. We can either blame God and lash out, or we can learn. And if you've tended to either shut down or lash out, I dare you to declare God's good. And watch him make a shift in your life as you determine once and for all, God's good. He won't fail me. Third reason we hold on to hope and grief is God comforts us when we mourn. Jesus said this. He said this to his followers. He said, blessed are those who mourn. They will be comforted. And it's in the midst of a whole bunch of blessings that are assured to people in what sounds like a very upside-down world that he's talking about. Those who will be comforted are the people who mourn. Uh, Timothy Keller, in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, takes from Martin Luther's studies of scriptures, and he writes this. If we know he loves us unconditionally, despite our flaws, then we know he's present with us, and working in our lives in times of pain and sorrow. And we can know he's not merely close to us, but he's indwelling, and we're members of his body. He senses our sufferings as his own. 
Now, I want you to think about this. Jesus senses our sufferings as his own. Do you remember Paul before he was Paul was Saul? And he was a nasty dude. He was religious, hardcore, and violent against the church of Christ. And when he was on his way to Damascus and the vision hit him, and he was really knocked off his donkey, and he's blinded by the light, think of the words that Jesus said to him. Why do you persecute me? Now, Paul, Saul was putting people in prison, and he was persecuting people, and he was trying to get them killed. And Jesus said, I'm feeling this. You're persecuting me. Now, for the person who feels in the midst of pain and suffering, I'm all alone, Jesus is saying, I'm feeling what you're feeling. And that's a big starting point to redefining God's goodness in your life in the midst of grief. God not only knows everything, most of us are pretty agreed on that. He's really intelligent. He knows everything. We use this word omniscient, all-knowing. Have you ever thought of your amazing God as one who feels everything? Try that out. God feels everything. Whoa. Can you try to imagine when you try to feel what a few people in your life are feeling, how that feels for you? Think of the one who knows and loves all, feeling everything that's being felt. For little finite me, that's staggering. I don't know how he does it. But he actually not only knows, but feels everything. Isaiah 53, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering or grief, it says in Scripture. In McManus's book, The Genius of Jesus, he points out that usually we note genius as being an aptitude that's expressed as a skill to do something. So we see a person who's either a genius in classical music or jump shots, or they're a genius in math or ballet. And we sit there in wonder and in awe, and we watch the genius at work. But what McManus points out that's so remarkable about the genius of Jesus is, number one, it's transferable. Like, I could be with a genius jump shooter all day, probably not doing the NBA for a variety of reasons. You could be with a genius musician who's a composer. Spend your life with them. You may never successfully compose music. But it's promised in the scriptures that when we walk with Jesus, his genius rubs off on us. We become like him. And most people don't see genius typically as transferable. The other thing that's amazing about Jesus' genius is it's primarily not shown as an aptitude for a specific skill in one area. It's that it's its character traits on the whole. His whole character was genius. And one of the things that McManus digs into in his book that I find so beautiful is that the true genius of Jesus was his ability to fully understand others. Race through that if you know the scriptures of him meeting different people in one-off encounters and they come to him with questions or they come to him with sorrow or they come to him to connect and he knows what they're actually feeling. He knows what they're going through. He knows the social stigma they're experiencing. He knows the heartache or the loss they have. He knows what they're trying to navigate for the sake of how peers will perceive them. And he speaks and listens into that. So here's a little quote from that book. Perhaps the greatest gift one person can give another 
is the gift of being understood. Now remember, we're talking about how God comforts us when we mourn, right? The gift of being understood. The power of the empath is that you stand with people in their pain, in their grief, in their fear, in their doubt. You weep when they weep. Imagine how different the world would be if we could get beyond ourselves and connect to the hearts of those most hurting and alone. This is the genius of Jesus. This is how God comforts us when we mourn. He places you and I in the lives of others as they hurt, and he says, you can take my genius of understanding others, and you can understand others. You can bring the goodness of God into this hurt, into this grief. You can bring the gospel of good news into a place of difficulty and isolation. Who else senses that resistance inside or that awkwardness, at least some hesitation to approach someone who you know is going through a crisis? How quickly do you pick up the phone, drive over to someone's house, or purposely engage with someone when they've just experienced loss? Or does it, as often happens with me, go into your mind as something that would be good to do, and then you go, oh, that could be really difficult. I think that would be awkward. Well, what? Maybe they're not even home. And you find yourself thinking about it four times and possibly not doing something once. Now, this is the way where really Christ's body gets to be activated. We overcome those personal reasons which are selfish and wrong, and we start to be the one who fully understands others as Christ takes us on the journey. In short, when Christ says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, I believe he's saying, this is what I'm making a church to do and to be. Right? It's us. We are the answer to that. If you're sitting there going, how are mourning people, grieving and suffering, experiencing pain to be be comforted? It's me. It's you. We show up as the arms and the feet, the hands, the loving goodness of Jesus into the lives of people who feel alone and overwhelmed. And you know what? You don't have to have really eloquent words or articulate responses or questions. There's something beautiful about understanding by being with another. It must hurt to be where you're at right now. I just came to be with you. Whether it's a walk or a coffee or just a hug. There's something so profound when we do that within and outside of the church because we're showing off Jesus the way he really means to show off. He's with the brokenhearted. We're going to go into our fourth and final, and this is where it's going to get really, really beautiful. (laughs) Because our fourth reason for how we can radiate hope in the midst of suffering, I'm going to say a strange phrase here. You might have heard us say it already once this morning. We know how to lament. And you're like, I don't. Well, if you've ever read the Bible, you do. You've read object lesson after object lesson of how to lament. One third of all the Psalms are laments. They're people in crisis, overwhelmed, anxious, freaked out about life and their circumstances, and they actually put pen to paper, and they lament before God. This is a great little story I want to share with you from Keller. One author shares a story of a man who was his good friend. And early in marriage, this man with two children, his wife left him for another man. There was legal expenses, loss of the kids, 
and other challenges. It was tough. The author came to visit his friend to see how he was faring through the hardship. And the young father said something profound. He said, in the middle of many operas, there's an aria. It's a sad and moving solo when the main character turns their sorrow into something beautiful. And now is my time to sing. I don't want to. I never wanted this chance. But what else am I going to do about it? I just want to read you that phrase. The main character turns their sorrow into something beautiful. I shared with the group on our Facebook page this week this article from the Desiring God Library written by an author named Mark Vrogop, and the title of his article was Dare to Hope in God, How to Lament Well. And he writes in there, there's an often neglected prayer language in the Bible for our travels through a broken world. It's lament. Lament talks to God about our pain. And I love this phrase, to cry is human, but to lament is Christian. So I encouraged people there to read the article. And I said, if you'd like to, I'm going to ask you to craft a cry. Write something down that really expresses the hurt you're going through. And write it as a lament like the Psalms do for us. And we used a few examples of Psalms that are laments. And see if you can bring that to Life Tree on Sunday and share your lament with the congregation. And then I pushed send and it went out. And I was like, oh, what am I asking people to do? I've never in all my years seen a congregation get together to listen to someone craft their cry. It's pretty raw. And within a day, we had responses from multiple people. And this morning, we have three who are going to share their lament. We're going to go by height tallest to least tall. It's going to be Tim and Telsey and Shirley who are going to share with us their lament. And they've each lost someone, someone who they love has died. Tim's lost a child. Telsey's lost a parent. Shirley's lost a life partner. And I'd asked you to try to do two things this week. One was, you know, establish God's good. The second one will be that maybe you'll take what hurts the most in your life and you'll craft a cry this week. Maybe it'll be a release point for you going into Christmas to write out what hurts the most and turn to God with it. So with that, I'll just ask you guys to come up. How about one at a time? I'll give you the mic. And there's just going to be three quotes from something as informal as Winnie the Pooh to the Revelation up on the screen while you're listening to Tim and then Telsey and Shirley. And we'll just ask you guys to hand the mic one to another. Blessings to each of you. Guys, let's draft off of what they're doing for us. This is beautiful. God. Oh, God, why? Why did he do that to me? Why did he touch me like that? I was only a child. Oh, God, why? 
Why so many years later did another man do that to my daughter? She was still only a child. Oh, God. Why? Why did I get so sick? Why was there so much pain? Why did it last so long? Oh, God, why? Why did heroin consume my son? Why did it ravage him so? Why did it take his life? Oh, God, help me. Father, help me to see the light you surround me with, the light that pierces this darkness. Father, tell me again that you have me and you hold me safe in your arms. Daddy, show me again that the worst Satan can do is nothing compared to the glory that you have in store for me. Daddy, let me see again the vision of my son, happy, whole, and excited, cheering me on. Jesus, my hope, Let me see you again, that I may remember who you are and what you have done. Jesus, my king, remind me again of who you are in me and who I am in you. Jesus, my friend, cause me to smile again. Because this journey isn't over. And with you, it's going to be okay. God, this is hard, and this really sucks. I miss my mom. This connection I always had has suddenly been cut off. She longed for me, and you answered her cry after a great loss, and you knit me in her womb. She was my very first connection on the earth, and it's very strange and lonely without her here. Oh, I can't see. I didn't want my mom's story to end this way. I wanted her here for much longer that my kids would have more time with her, too. On top of missing her, I feel like I'm grieving my move to Canada all over again. My heart aches being far from my dad and my siblings right now. How long will these deep aches remain? I am tired, and I feel depleted. When will you fill my cup to overflowing? 
I feel like I have nothing to give. And that is so hard for me to accept because I want to be present and a generous person. Sometimes I feel like a fraud just trying to be normal for the people around me. When will I feel more myself again? There are times I go numb in hopes to move on quicker, but it gets dark on that road and I can feel my heart start to harden and it scares me. Oh God, help me to keep my heart soft and open towards you and towards people. I know that you are here and that your tender, loving eyes are upon me. You are ever present in my time of need. You sit with me and are locked in catching every word I speak. Even in silence, you sit with me, wiping every tear. You, more than anyone, knows what it's like to ache and suffer with sadness. Jesus, what beauty you displayed in your own suffering. What you did for the world, for me, conquering sin and death means that I get to see my mama again someday. It means that we can experience joy amid sadness. I will think on these things and remember your steady faithfulness woven throughout my life. There is no denying your glorious goodness. I cannot stop seeing it even though I admit I have tried. It is your face I shall keep seeking, no matter how I'm feeling, no matter what circumstances I find myself in. It is you that I want sitting next to me. January 1st, 2020. Happy New Year. None of us had yet heard of COVID, shutdowns, vaccines, masks, or social distancing. Very few of us had any indication that our lives were about to change in drastic ways. On January 3rd, Paul, my beloved husband, slipped and fell getting out of bed very early in the morning. He suffered a concussion and three broken teeth when he hit his head on the night table. He had trouble getting back up onto the bed and seemed very confused. My first thought was that he might have had a little stroke. In spite of my best efforts, I was not able to get him back up, so I, I phoned our neighbor, Lance, to ask him to help me get Paul into the car so I could drive him to the hospital. Lance vetoed that idea and called an ambulance. Later that day, in spite of assurances that he had not had a stroke, Paul's confusion increased. He had to stay in hospital that night. Many of my prayers were almost frantic. Lord, what's happening? Where can I get help that Paul needs? Thankfully, he came home the next day, but needed a lot of extra help from me. Disaster was averted, I thought. 
three weeks later, I came down with pneumonia and spent nearly a week in hospital. In spite of my pleas for information, the Lord was silent. When I did get home, I realized that Paul was far from well. By then, my prayers were much more focused, and I resolved to trust God, since he alone knows the end from the beginning. Just as I had been learning in our almost 60 years of marriage. Then COVID struck, and suddenly we were in a world of masks, hand sanitizers, closures, and a great deal of fear. Fear is never from God. So often in the Bible, we are encouraged to fear not. Confusion seems to be everywhere. In May 2020, I developed a serious infection in my spine that took me to hospital again. One afternoon, a doctor appeared at my bedside and asked, if you get any worse, do you want me to send you to ICU or are you done? That made me angry and I started to fight back. No, I'm not done. I still have things to do to see God's kingdom established here on earth. Oh, Lord, help me to hear your voice amidst all the clamor. Lord, show me how to be a part of your plan. And please, equip me to bring glory to your name. In spite of all the isolation and fear, please, Jesus, keep your church body from breaking fellowship and support for each other. I thank you, Lord, for how you have knitted hearts together and provided for loving support for Paul and me. Teach me your ways, Lord, and enable me to walk in them. This church, known as Life Tree, is an amazing body of Christ. When I returned home, so many people lovingly cared for us with meals, cleaning, laundry, rides to appointments, and encouragements. For weeks, we learned to humbly depend on others for all the things we were unable to do for ourselves. My health improved, but Paul's continued to slip. Hernia surgery left him unable to walk, or dress himself, or look after his personal needs. In spite of much prayer and physiotherapy, Paul continued to grow weaker physically. At the beginning of November, just over a month ago, I called again for an ambulance to take him to the hospital. He had developed a twisted bowel and needed emergency surgery. My prayers were full of faith, optimism, and hope. We had overcome so much. But on November 6th, Paul had a sudden heart attack and fell into a coma. I immediately called our son Peter in Fort McMurray and Paul's sister in Summerland. Mostly, I prayed in tongues. On November 8th, the three of us were with Paul when he slipped away to be with Jesus.
Later that night, the Lord reminded me of King David's words in 2 Samuel 12, 23. I will go to him one day, but he cannot return to me. Lord, I praise you for that promise. I love this church. If this is your first time at Life Tree, we like to keep it real around here. You may have noticed. I have a lot going through my mind and through my heart. Um, I'm not going to unload it all on you right now. But I couldn't stop thinking throughout the message this morning, throughout listening to these ones share. And I just want to say, you guys, like, I don't know how you felt hearing them share their lament, their grief, and their hope. But I hope you know that that was a gift this morning to have um, that shared with us. I don't know how many of you have soaking wet masks, but mine was definitely, <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was working as tissue and uh, safety today. <sighs> but I couldn't help thinking of this scripture all morning. We mourn with those who mourn, and we rejoice with those who rejoice. And that beauty of the gospel that Stacy was sharing with us, that, that we're not called to avoid it. We step right into it. We experience it all. And it's held together because of who Jesus is and what this that we're doing right now signifies. That in the midst of the greatest evil the world has ever known, the murder of the Son of God, the greatest good and the greatest hope the world has ever known was being given, was being written And I welcome you guys to stand. I'm going to pray a blessing, and I'm going to let you go. Father, we thank you for this reality that we spoke of as we opened up this morning. That in Christ, we came to know on a whole new level, God with us. Lord, we thank you for the gift of that revelation. And I ask that by your Spirit, you would transform us into a people who know how to walk with one another. Entering into one another's grief, entering into one another's joy. May we embody that reality of God with us through this Christmas season and beyond. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, team. Thank you, Stacy. Thank you, those of you who shared your hearts with us. I love you, and I'm grateful for this church family. Thank you for listening to the Life Tree Church Sermon of the Week. At Life Tree, we are a family all about declaring and displaying Jesus to transform lives and benefit our city. If you'd like to find out more about Lifetree, you can find us online at lifetree.ca.